I will pick up the story where I left off. No, perhaps I'll go back a few steps. Just to remind you where we came from. We came from the avijja or lack of knowledge. And we defined it as simply the absence of understanding or knowledge, the presence of misdirections or misunderstandings, and the last one is disinformation, deliberate misdirection. And it's good to think about those things. That kind of language comes up in international politics quite often. It also comes up in war, during war. There's claims of just not knowing, of ignorance. And then there is mistakes, not having the right information. And then there is the a deliberate, and this is how wars are fought, is a deliberate attempt to misinform each other. Sometimes a deliberate attempt to misinform your own population as well. So these are the three kinds of distortions of knowledge, the absence of it. And the ordinary person has those three operating within them. And out of that, we make decisions. Since we have to progress through life, our maps are deeply flawed. So we're starting off with this avijja, which means that the maps are deeply flawed. There may be some accuracy in the maps, but there's other elements of missing from the maps, little pieces torn out of the maps, something coffee stains spilled onto the map, maybe alcohol stains, wine stains on the map. This also tributes to confusion. There's a lot of stains on the map, and there's a lot of chunks of missing map. And then there's the sinister redrawing of the map that was done in the night while you were asleep by somebody else, hoping that you would go in the wrong direction. So this is what we're navigating with. And what the navigation, the actual processing is called, the next step is called Sankara volitional activities, making a move, because you have to. It's one thing you can't not do is you can't not make a move. Unless you're in a coma or something like this. You are, uh, you are making decisions constantly in life about activities, etc., and also about how you feel, whether you know it or not, whether you feel it that way or not, you are actually making volitional actions which are producing feelings, emotional feelings. Aside from the sensations in the body, there's two types of feelings, right? The sensations that occur in the body and then the sensations that accompany emotions. 
The sensations that occur in the body are really not so important. They are secondary elements that you can stand aside from and you can have various relationships with because they're not volitional. The sensations in the body are not volitional. But the sensations which accompany thought processes, which we would call emotion, you're not standing aside from those. You're not objectively looking at those. You might be said to be those. You are entangled with those. And they arise from sankharas, these volitional formations. And this is rising, operating, dependent on this problematic avijja, this lack of knowledge, this ignorance, this misdirection. So this is the part of the right effort is to know how to make effort which is effective. People, it's amazing how much effort they put into their lives, but quite often it's not effective effort because they don't have the right information, the skills. So quite often when people join search and rescue teams, they go in search of people. <laughs> and they, they're often deeply admiring of just how energetic a lost person is, how far you have to follow them in the wrong direction. They're climbing mountains and down <laughs> over glaciers and skiing farther and farther into the forest, especially if they're in good shape and they're really determined. It is just amazing how, how much time and effort there is to rescue them from their own energetic misapprehensions. So it's not merely a matter of energy or efforts, it's effective effort in the right direction. And that has to be informed. And so that's what we talked about. You cannot know this except through the secondary effects. The person who's lost doesn't know they're heading in the right direction, but at some point they might see that the sun is going down over to their left, and then they deduce that I must have gone in the wrong direction. I must have not understood where I was going. So what's that? That's the five hindrances are the food of avijja. And the five hindrances are visible. They can be seen, they can be felt, they can be known. Your misinformation, your absence of information, your mistaken information can't be known directly. You can't see your own delusional structures, but you can know that they must be there because you are experiencing these hindrances. And then you have to inquire, why do I experience these hindrances? And last night I talked about because of unwise attention to what are called the signs, unwise attention to the fault, unwise attention to the beautiful, the attractive, the desirable. The roots of why these hindrances arise 
And that we can know is that, so what are the instructions to a monk who has had a beautiful, peaceful meditation from 3.30 in the morning in the forest monasteries? Now they're going to, after a couple of hours, they're going to finish that, do some chanting, sweep up, and now they're heading to the village every day. You got to go to the village. You got to walk through the village on alms round. Now they have this sign, they, hopefully they have a sign of peace. The experience of peace has descended upon them in their meditations in the morning. But now they have to go walk through the middle of a village. And there's kids and people and various things. I mean, in modern times, down in uh, White Salmon, and I'm not too sure what's on the road these days, but and certainly in the good old days of Thailand, there were water buffaloes and kids and various blaring music and televisions and smells of cooking and all kinds of stuff. What is the instruction for the monks? Should they observe it? Should they reflect on it? No, actually the instruction by the Buddha is monks sense restraint. Walk as if you were plowing a field, monks, with your eyes six feet in front of you. Don't look around. Don't, in other words, don't look for the sign of the beautiful or the sign of the fault. To restrain your senses doesn't mean to close your eyes. It means that the signs of things, the sign, the characteristic of things, are actually manufactured by you in the way you observe things. So do not pay heed to the sign of the fault. You know, you're walking through the village and, and somebody is neglecting their kids or, or has their water buffalo out in the street, etc. And you're thinking, why don't people, <laughs> why don't they think? <laughs> what are they doing, etc. That, that's, now you have abandoned sense restraint and you have detected the sign of the fault and you are now observing the sign of the fault. And guess where your sign of peace went? It went away is where it went. The moment you attach to the sign of the fault, as soon as you investigate the sign of the beautiful also, you think, you know, be kind of fun to live in this village. Some cool things happening here. Supper for one. <laughs> wonder what that's like. I haven't had supper for 13 years. I wonder. It smells pretty good, you know. So that's the sign of the beautiful. Or maybe something blasting over the music sound systems and strangely in a in a village with dirt roads and so forth, there may be stereos playing at six in the morning. So this is the sign of the beautiful and the sign of the fault, and this is called sense restraint, and this is how you pay attention, and if you get the sign of peace, how you guard the sign of peace. So we're talking about prevention here, 
the prevention of the rising of the five hindrances. And if the five hindrances do not arise, all the time that's spent with them inactive is actually weakening the structure and is unconsciously at the time, perhaps, is diminishing the effects of disinformation, misinformation, and lack of information. It's diminishing the energy. It's changing the structure of the maps. If you do this, if you restrain your senses, if you diminish the potential arising of the hindrances, your map is changing. And remember that you have to make your way through life with this map that's got wrong information on and your decisions, in other words. So your decisions are going to be different. You're going to start making different decisions. And it's a subtle thing. It can be a subtle thing. Sometimes it's a very obvious thing. Sometimes you just, for instance, who you associate with or what kind of conversation you get into with people. And it could be a literal conversation or it could be a memory conversation, you know, going over, rehashing it, an interaction with somebody. If you do this, and because the hindrances aren't active, your whole system is more at ease and peaceful and so forth. And you, you, your, your tendencies to go into negative interactions, to brood over them, to mull them over, to be resentful and so forth, tend to diminish. The energy for that just tends to diminish. Also, your, your complaint about the lack in your life tends to be diminished as well. You don't feel so needy and wanty and likey. <laughs> uh, I want, I crave, I lack. You just don't feel that way. So you're diminishing the energies now. Now that feeds back into the decisions you make, influences a next step in your this dependent origination consciousness. You're actually, because the decisions you're making are actually restructuring your consciousness. Now consciousness has got various definitions. You know, the, the basic description of consciousness is fundamentally sights, consciousness of a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, and consciousness of ideas, six types of consciousness. But consciousness is not just like a machine or kind of like a, what are you, these, these cameras, security cameras that you have on your house. That's not, your consciousness is not like that. It's selective. It's actually choosing and focusing and moving and also part of your history is also bringing up a tendency to look at something at a certain time like there's two of you in the room and one of you is noticing the wallpaper and the other one is noticing what's what's for supper and so your, your consciousness is selecting out of a almost an infinite number of possible sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, and ideas. There's almost an unlimited number. Why that one? Why do you pay attention to that? And why the sight? Why not the sound? 
or why not the, the smell, the, the taste? Or why not none of those and, and why not an interior sort of reflection on something? Why that? That's why you're, as we said before, the world arises within you. The world, the objective world, is not an objective world. You can never experience the objective world. You experience particular world. And that particular world is very shaped by your consciousness. Two people walking down the street will not have the same experience. It just won't be the same. Multiple types of experience. Your consciousness, in other words, is structured and shaped and conditioned. And one of the roots of this is your previous types of volitions and decisions that you have made is structuring your consciousness. And then there's a feedback loop. As your consciousness changes, then it influences your new decisions as well. So it feeds back, back and forth. These things are coming out of what is the decision-making process is also coming, rising out of lack of information, misinformation, disinformation. Not always, not exclusively, sometimes it's rising out of accurate information as well. There's parts of the map that are accurate. That part we want to keep. That part we like. It's the other part that's the problem. So since this is a talk on right effort, it's the first two right efforts are prevention and removal of what? These negative mental states, in brief, the five hindrances. So there's a continuous attempt to come up with new and good techniques, effective techniques, to prevent and remove the food that nourishes these inaccurate ideas, this misrepresentation of reality called avijja, and if we do that, we're also influencing the sankha, the next level, the decisions that we make, the restructuring of our consciousness, and things are starting to happen in a very positive way. We're bringing down all kinds of negative possibilities that can occur in the future if we don't do this. We're diminishing the, the suffering potentials by doing this. So we go back a couple of steps before avijja. We had the hindrances are the food of avijja and then unwise reflection, unwise attention is the cause of the rising of the hindrances. And before that, what is the cause of the rising of unwise attention? It is having heard, having given ear and turned over in one's mind wrong information, misdirection. I have been told that you should dwell on the sign of the fault. You should dwell on the sign of the beautiful. You have heard this and you have reflected on this, and then you have gone forth and engaged in this. So what is the, how do we deplete that? How do we reduce that energy? What is it that causes the arising of this idea of 
wise attention, wise attention to the sign of the fault, wise attention to the beautiful, how do we have that? What gives rise to that? Having given ear, listened, and turned over in the mind, advice to do that very thing, not to unwisely extract the sign of the fault, not unwisely to extract the sign of the beautiful. And how do you know it's unwise? Remember, because it's accompanied by anger, aversion, or desire. So, what are you doing right now? You are listening, you are giving ear to talk on this very process of how to diminish unwise attention to the fault, unwise attention to the beautiful, which will in turn diminish the tendency of the hindrances to arise, which will in turn alter the structure of your avijja, your ignorance, which will change all of the decisions and processes and volitions that you make and will alter your, the structure of your consciousness, where your attention goes in terms of sights and sounds and smells and tastes and touches and ideas. And so this is the process how this goes about. So this giving ear, and this is like listening to Dhamma. It has a couple of effects. One is sometimes it's a good idea. You're getting a new idea or you're just getting encouragement. But also, it also takes you out of your own ruminations and you hear the voice of another is changing your mood. So as you give ear to this reflections on Dhamma, which if they're in the right direction, then even the fact that you're not ruminating and doing the processing is also contributing to uh, beneficial results. And if there is information, which you have not heard before or reflected on before, in the Dhamma talk, then it will also have more positive results as well. The third effect of Dhamma talks is that it's just that it sometimes just changes your, you have something to do, it's wholesome, and while that's going on, it catches your attention and you develop a sense of interest and with interest rises joy. You're enjoying the information, the talk, or the delivery, or something like that. And then those happen to be some of the enlightenment factors. Joy and interest, right there. And investigation. Those are actually enlightenment factors. Those are the positive side. And that also is diminishing. When those arise, it tends to support the arising of wisdom. Wisdom and insight is the opposite of avijja. So what is the opposite of avijja? Knowledge. Avija is lack of knowledge, vija is knowledge. So you're supporting the arising of vija, and once vija arises, it's going to support the arising of different decisions and volitions, and that's going to change your consciousness, etc., and it's going to proceed like that. This is all part of right effort. This is why right effort is such an amazingly important part of the path, and is, I don't know why, it's so... It's just not talked about very much because of its glamorous sister, right mindfulness, seems to get all the attention. 
And usually it's not right mindfulness, it's usually mindfulness. Mindfulness is, covers a lot of territory. But notice it's right mindfulness. It's, mindfulness is not, is not a Buddhist feature. Right mindfulness is a very particular, selective use of the capacity for attention. It's a very particular, directed attention at the service of an ideal, at the service of another level. It's not mere attention. And until we incorporate this right effort with right mindfulness, then we won't have right mindfulness. We won't understand what right mindfulness is unless we fully explore what the Buddha is urging us to do with right effort. Beautiful simile is that effort, so there's four parts to right effort, and you remember this idea of the raft, the raft to carry you across the river, and there's some fun similes around that. Remember the, the urging of that a man makes a raft and then goes across to the other side, and there's a suggestion by the, the Buddha asks the monks, then should he carry on his head that raft? And the monks say, no, he shouldn't carry it on his head. He's already got across the river, so he should just leave it on the banks. Right? So this is the simile of the raft. When you go into the simile of the raft, it's about right effort, because it's not a raft, actually. It's a bundle of sticks. A life preserver is what it is. How does the guy get across the river? It turns out he kicks and he swims with both arms and both legs. It's not much of a raft. It is a bundle of sticks that he puts under his chest. Very few people could swim in those days. There's all kinds of countries to this day where nobody knows how to swim. The only way you're going to cross a body of water is by flotation. The man gets a bundle of sticks, wraps them up with a cord. Notice it's a very casual thing. This is not your first-class raft at all. It's a bundle of sticks, enough to float you. And he then enters the river, and he paddles with both arms and kicks with both legs. And mercifully, he manages to get to the other side of the river. Now it makes sense why he wouldn't carry a bundle of sticks on his head. Now, a raft, like what? <laughs> a bundle of sticks? Maybe. <laughs> you know. But the Buddha says, no, he doesn't have to carry even that bundle of sticks. By the way, what is the bundle of sticks? What is the bundle of sticks? It's a nice little collection of teachings, little dhamma advice that you've picked up along the way, which is enough to get you across the river, but not more than that. It's just to keep you from going down. It's enough to float underneath your chest to keep you up. That's what you need, just enough. It's not a houseboat. It's not a yacht. You do not have to ingest the entire tripitaka, learn it forwards and backwards in Pali, articulate all the 37 requisites of enlightenment, all of this stuff. You don't need to do that. You should head out into the river. <laughs> the water is rising, my friends. In other words, you don't know when you're going to die. Do you have really time to 
to just leisurely explore it as an academic exercise. No, you need some useful tools, enough to get you out there and get you across without drowning. And you've got to kick and paddle. What is that? What is the two hands, the two arms are, first two of the right efforts, prevention and removal of the negative things, unskillful things. What are the, the legs, two legs kicking? Those are the, the third and fourth right effort to cultivate wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen and to maintain wholesome mental states that have arisen and to deepen and develop them. So we have this, see the graphic importance of this right effort, the bundle of teachings. It's just a support, but you're not going to go anywhere with just floating on this thing. The, the process of, of eliminating negative things through prevention and removal and the propelling of you through this wholesome development and the deepening and sustaining of those wholesome emotional states, mental and emotional states, is what's going to actually be the, make it effective. Because a bundle of sticks will have you float, but you're just floating. That's all you're doing, you're to float. If you don't use these four right efforts, it won't be effective. So right effort is how you actually effect this, this escape. What are you escaping from, by the way? Why does the guy want to go across the river anyway? What's wrong with this side? This side, the problem with this side is that it floods, and that the flood is coming up, and everything gets wiped out on this side. In other words, impermanence, and it inevitable loss, illness, aging, death, loss, the impossibility of stabilizing anything to keep and control and manage is impossible because of the flooding nature of the universe, the entropy, endless change, tendency of impermanence and insubstantiality. That is what wipes that bank out. And the other side is elevated above that. It's a place where you're secure. You're standing in a at a vantage point, which transcends this, this impermanent and insecure and unstable nature of reality that people are looking for stability in. They're looking for stability in that which cannot, where stability can't be found. They're looking for security where security can't be found. Looking for control where control cannot be found. They're looking for sustained well-being and pleasure where sustained well-being and pleasure cannot be found. And so this is this, the, the meaning of this story, this simile of the raft and the paddling and so forth. It's interesting, you hear these stories and you, you get some idea that there's enlightenment is crossing a river on a raft or something. And now, by the way, this, this uh, not carrying it on your head, by the way, is is that the teachings themselves, the thing that gets you there, is not something that you need once it's served its purpose. 
you're learning to to effectively get across there, and then you, the teachings have done their work. You're not to cling to them, you're not to carry them around. You're, you have accomplished that. You're free. It is now your second nature to be free. It has now taken on a, a feeling of a second nature that you are not susceptible to those illusions anymore and not susceptible to the delusions anymore. The teachings and how you have grasped them and understood them have been adequate. And you should also think, I need some viable, a few viable things, enough to float me through life. I need to stay up, get my head above it. Do I have enough teachings to get me through the inevitable situations I'm going to face? Do I have enough to, maybe they're okay while everything's going well in my life, but what if I lose my job? What if I get sick? What if I lose a relationship? What if I suddenly am blamed for something rather than praised? What if I fail rather than I succeed? Is that stuff going to keep me above water still? Have I got enough teachings there to adequately deal with those situations? If not, then I need a few more. And so basically uh, there's you know, about four or five, five ones that will see you through almost anything. What are those five? I'm glad you asked. I will tell you tomorrow night. <laughs>